You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Let us pray. Dear Father, as we come to your word, we desire as always to be submissive to you, to be humble before you, not to consider that we know what is right, but instead to acknowledge in every way, mentally, physically, and emotionally, that you alone are right. That as you are righteous, it is your right and fitting position to be our teacher. And that is what we are acknowledging when we come before your word. To listen to it, to consider it, to mull it over in our minds, and to walk in obedience to it as it explains to us your will and your ways. Lord, I ask that my words might be fitting and in keeping with your word because your word, as it proceeds from you alone, is holy. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, Yitzhak Rabin, the Prime Minister of Israel, was assassinated by one of his own people. This great tragedy, the murder of a man is not just occurring, however, in far distant places. There have been several incidents reported in the news in our general area in the last week or so which have been in the minds of many of us. One in which a 20-some-year-old beat his step-grandmother almost to death. The other in which a 16-year-old shot a policeman dead. These are the events, the crimes of our times that demonstrate that we are not living in a peaceful, sheltered Realm here in the Tri-Cities, East Tennessee, Southwest Virginia area. Hatred of one another is alive and well. The physical act of murder is just one example of how such hatred is demonstrated. But as we look at this, we cannot help but jump to the next logical step, which is solutions. Solutions. There is only one solution. There is only one activity that will put a halt to deadly crime in our midst or in our world. More prisons won't. Swifter punishment and execution of offenders won't. Teaching people about the awful nature of committing crime, telling them to be better citizens won't. Cultural events won't. Friends won't. Now, all of these are appropriate responses, appropriate responses of individuals and of governments to the occurrence, for instance, of murder in our culture or any culture. But the only thing that can push back a wave of evil is the power of Christ to transform human hearts and minds from the inside out so that people will learn, as Cain claimed he was not, the people will learn to be the opposite of Cain who killed his brother Abel. People will learn to be their brother's keepers to love one another rather than to hate, to keep track of wrongs and seek revenge. 
However, at the same time we recognize that this is the only power that is able to transform this situation. We recognize, too, that Satan is pushing our community and our world in the opposite direction. So that murder continues and increases as he has his way. For whatever leads to the spiritual destruction of people is to his satisfaction and is to his benefit. And so we then conclude our examination of the Sixth Commandment today by looking first at activities that cheapen the value of human life. What are those things that cheapen the value of human life? That teach people, killing is okay. Unfortunately, it is true that many murders occur in a cold-blooded way. Police officers are remarking on this around the nation. The murder is becoming more and more common among particularly young men who kill other people just for the fun of it because this is a new experience that they have not been involved in before. Murder is something that is happening in a cold-blooded way. People are doing it not because they are upset, not because they hated the individual that they killed, not because they had any real reason to do so, just because they thought it would be Again, an interesting experience to add to their list of accomplishments. <clears throat> With this in mind, we must pay attention to the fact that it is not just uncontrolled feelings of anger or hatred or jealousy that cause murder. Murder is also promoted in subtle and not so subtle ways in our culture, in the ways in which the value of human life is cheapened and demeaned. Human life is cheapened in any culture when the state declares murder is legal. This has an immediate chilling effect on the sanctity of all human life. Regardless of what conditions the state proclaims killing to be legal in, the effects are the same in cheapening the value of human life. In our culture, the state has declared that murder is legal if it's called abortion. Now, no genuine biologist questions when life begins. But for all intents and purposes, in our country, we defy science. It seems highly unusual that our nation, of all nations, would defy science. We choose to defy science in a manner which is more crucial than any other, save our nation's regard for the Lord God. We deny that a fertilized egg is a living being. We call it a mass of protoplasm, a fetus, even though fetus means in Latin, in English, the Latin word fetus means baby. Anything, just to assuage our national conscience so that we can continue the killing unabated. Legalized killing begets more killing, no matter how you look at it. When killing is legalized, it will encourage more killing. My brother David recommended the September Atlantic Monthly's article entitled On Abortion, A Lincolnian Position by George McKenna. I began to read the article and find it challenging, interesting, and accurate. The September Atlantic's On Abortion, A Lincolnian P- Position. The author begins by pointing out that the one thing <clears throat> that those who favor abortion in our land try to control is the use of terms. Terminology is what counts. They will go to any lengths to avoid allowing the word abortion to appear. I would encourage you to stop by the library and read the article or to borrow it from me. It's an excellent article. 
It is the same with abortion as it has been with every other legalized form of killing over the years. The killing has been sanitized by pretending that it has a noble purpose, which is supposed to have a higher value than human life. And the human life that is being snuffed out is somehow made out to be, in one way or another, subhuman, not the equivalent of true human life. In the case of abortion, the higher value is said to be the woman's right to choose, and the unborn are classified as not yet humans. In ancient Rome, it was the term paterfamilias, which referred to the father's authoritative right to determine the fate of his family. And thus, infanticide was justified, practiced frequently, legalized. And the infants were classified as the property property of their fathers. In 20th century Germany, Aryan supremacy was the noble goal that began by justifying the murder of countless mentally disabled, continued with physically disabled the elderly, and resulted in the deaths of millions of Jews, gypsies, and others. And those killed were classified as living unfit lives deemed as unfit to be treated as human beings. In our culture, politicians remind us constantly that they will not let their own personal convictions or opinions affect their decisions on matters such as these. The phrases, and if you've ever received a letter from someone, an elected official, a representative, or a senator, these phrases come up time and time again. This is a highly personal decision. Highly personal decision. The phrases, you cannot legislate morality. We are told this time and time again, you cannot legislate morality. It's become an axiom of our nation. But if we didn't legislate against murder, which is legislated morality, <clears throat> just imagine what a murderous country we would become. If some people had not seen fit to legislate morality, murder would not be illegal in any form. <clears throat> when the state is governed by those who bear power say that murder is legal human life becomes cheap when murder becomes common and legal people find ways again to refer to it so that the culture does not have to see it as it really is <clears throat> the killing of human beings for no justifiable or valid reason whatsoever and language euphemism the words of doublespeak come into vogue. Our leaders say, for instance, for instance, one of the other catchphrases is that abortion should be... What should abortion be? Safe, legal, and rare. Safe, legal, and rare. It's something, if you're involved in the debate, you can't miss it. <coughs> but anyone with an ounce of logic can see that if abortion is not wrong in any way whatsoever, if it is not morally wrong, there is no reason to want it to happen rarely. If it is merely a means of birth control, why should it happen rarely? There is a contradiction there which people are not willing to expose. Since it's turned on its head and the government puts its imprimatur 
its stamp of approval on the killing of the very children who would have by now filled many of our colleges, contributed to our gross national product, helped pay off our national debt by their payment of taxes, supported retirees through Social Security taxes, and on and on and on. Filled up our nursery. (laughs) We're getting there. But a murderous culture does other things to encourage mindless murder, to make murder seem less of a crime than it really is. One of the ways in which a culture does that is by encouraging the viewing of murder. Now this is an area where I'm stepping out a little bit here and I've already had dialogue with some of you on this particular subject. This is one step removed from being a bystander to murder, viewing murder. What I'm referring to here is watching it on the screen. Yet it is nonetheless a grave influence on the regard we as a society and as individuals have for human life. We are told that the average 18-year-old has watched somewhere around 18,000 murders by the time he hits that age on television or in movies. It's no accident that in the last several decades, not only has the murder rate skyrocketed, but also the film industry has dropped its ban on showing murders take place. What happens when we watch these things time and time again, and as the murders become more and more violent as the days and the years go by, as we watch these things and do nothing because you're not supposed to do anything, it's just a movie after all, <clears throat> we've told ourselves we've become divorced from the truth that murder is violent it's messy it's deadly it has terrible consequences obviously to the person who is murdered but just as much to that individual's family members and friends and to the person who commits the murder and to the society I would challenge you to avoid watching murders I don't think there's a biblical basis to say do not watch murders at all. But I think that it is one of those things where we have to find a principle and the principle is clear in Scripture. Murder is abhorrent to God. And if we treat it as an entertainment, it is something which greatly displeases the Lord. The next step for promoting murder in a mindless sort of way is to get people actually doing it without any of the real consequences of the act itself. Another parallel to viewing murder. Killing for sport. I was very interested several years ago to see an article and a picture in the Bristol Herald Courier about a place, I I think it was Laserstrom, I can't remember. Is is that a name of a place in Johnson City? Okay. Laserstrom. And it was interesting, they had this full, you know, large six by eight picture on one of the front pages of the newspaper. Among those quoted and pictured in the article were the members of a church youth group who had gone down to have fun killing people as a youth group activity. (laughs) Now, when you put it that way, (laughs) they'd gone down to have fun killing each other as a youth group activity. (laughs) Well, in this laser game and in countless video games, people play act murder upon other real people or on people who are real on the screen. This is not practice for the military, where there is a place for practicing something that you may be involved in, in deadly earnest. 
We want to be, as a culture, as a nation, we want to be critical of those who take this sort of play acting seriously. Now, we, we may not be all that critical of it here in this area, but in other parts of the country, people are very critical, for instance, of those who go out in the woods with paint guns. Okay? <clears throat> the culture is very critical of those who join paramilitary militia-type groups. Those who go out and play at war, play at killing other people. But we are promoting exactly the same sorts of things for our kids in our video games, in, in our laser-type simulated murder games. These games cheapen human life. These video games, for instance, are not only devoted to murder, they are also full of murderous sport. Several of the ones that have gained notoriety are not simply devoted to shooting, which does teach that murder is fun and the better you get at it, the better you feel about yourself, but that the worse you can eviscerate your opponent, the worse you can kill your opponent, the, the more violent method that you can use, the more points you gain. It is sport entertainment, which not only says killing is good, but that torturous killing is better. Again, I challenge you to refuse to be caught up in entertainment that degrades the value of human life. These things, <clears throat> as we're looking at this commandment, as we look at all of the commandments, we have to realize that we're not just dealing with physical acts. The reason we deal with physical acts, the reason God has given us these commandments to deal with physical acts, is because He is the one who created us and knows that physical acts have spiritual consequences. We're dealing with the lower level of things when we deal with physical acts because we are concerned with the higher level of things, which is our relationship with the Lord of the universe. Now, it's easy for us to not worry about the physical acts because we're not worried about the higher level, higher level which is our relationship with the creator of the universe. It's easy to do what we please in the physical realm because we cannot see the spiritual realm. But if we cannot see it here on this day, there will come a day when we will all see the spiritual realm and that realm will be the only realm that counts. That is why we look at the Ten Commandments. That is why we have to take this matter extremely seriously in deadly earnest. Jesus says in the New Testament, beware of those who, <clears throat> after killing the body, can kill the soul. That's a paraphrase. It's not an accurate paraphrase. But what he's telling people is this. If, you're, if your body is dead, your body is dead. But what matters here and now, when you listen to me, and in the future, when your body is dead, is not your body being alive or dead. What counts is the realm of the soul. What will happen for eternity? And so that is why we have to so carefully guard our actions in this physical, everyday sort of world. We have to be concerned primarily not to guard our physical actions. We have to primarily be concerned, first and foremost, and only with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Is it what it should be? But then that involves all these everyday choices. 
And that is where we have to concern ourselves, not with, is it fun? Do I enjoy it? Am I good at it? For instance, when you consider things such as these video games. But is it, you, you may not like the phrase, but is it uplifting? It, it sounds sort of corny. But the question really there is, is it going to make a difference in the hereafter? That is where we have to be focused. We are told in Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Then there are special cases. As we look at the situation, the subject of killing. The first special case with regard to murder or killing that makes it on the radar screen is, of course, suicide. I'd like to point out a small item in this command. Thou shalt not commit murder, as the King James Version indicates it. The special item regarding that is that the Hebrew has no object. There is no object in the grammar of this statement. So it is not simply saying, you shall not murder him, or you shall not murder her. It's saying, you shall not murder. Which means, therefore, that self-murder is equally as abhorrent in God's eyes as murder of another person. We don't call it murder, we call it suicide. Suicide, however, is not an unforgivable sin. I believe suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Many people speak of it. I think people have a tendency to think of suicide as being an unforgivable sin. But if murder is forgivable, and we know that Saul was involved in the murder of Stephen, we know others who were involved in murders. David, as we are discussing in our Sunday school class this morning, was involved in the murder of Uriah the Hittite and they were forgiven by God, then self-murder would also be forgiven by God. However, it is an affront to God. It is violating this commandment. So on one end of the spectrum is murder of another, in which one person demonstrates the hatred to kill a human being created in God's image. On the other end of the spectrum is a man in his desperation committing murder upon himself, by the means of suicide, a form of self-hate. These are two ways of dealing with situations. How do you deal with a situation where you have a seemingly unresolvable conflict? Kill the person! it's, it's, It's naked in all of its truth. But we have to consider that God desires for us when the situation is an unresolvable personal situation... God desires for us to spend our lives battling with whatever circumstances he has given to us. Why did he allow Satan to bring the trials into the life life of Job? In order for Satan and the world to see that Job (coughs) was faithful and lived out a faithful life, a life of faith to God, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. He doesn't want us to get out of these things to find a means of escape. He wants us to trust him in them and to demonstrate his grace as we live through whatever circumstances we are faced with. Life is a quadriplegic, for instance, some people would consider completely unbearable. Whether we face certain and painful death, although medication is certainly available now, 
in any circumstance to ease the pain of whatever illness, whether we face certain death than through a terminal disease. Even should we face the horrible fact that we have committed terrible crimes and that we and our family and friends will suffer the consequences of those crimes for years to come, even if we have come to financial and every other sort of ruin. God is not asking us to find a means of escape. He is asking us a way to find him to be sufficient strength in these circumstances. And so then we move on to the other special case, which is, how do you call it? Mercy killing, euthanasia, assisted suicide. Understand that in these cases, in the case of legalized killing, there are nations in which so-called mercy killing is legal. And states, for instance, in our country have begun to follow this trend. The issue boils down to one of semantics. Words. What words are you going to use to describe these sorts of things? As in George Orwell's 1984, if you can control the definitions of words, you can control the way the world goes. And so we have people crying out for euthanasia to to be made legal. It should be legalized. Why? Because there are these poor people whose quality of life is so poor that they deserve to be able to die with dignity peacefully. Because doctors should be allowed to help these people die so that they can do it painlessly. Because this is part of what being in a compassionate society involves. Compassionate society. But who says there's any truth or accuracy in any of these assumptions and outlooks? Don't buy them. Don't believe them, don't accept them, don't repeat them, don't have anything to do with these assumptions. Realize that euthanasia is merely that, assisted suicide. And where suicide is against God's plan, assisting another in another's suicide is at least as wrong. Jack Kevorkian's lawyer has suggested that because the Supreme Court has held the right of lower courts and of judicial and of uh, legislative branches to make assisting others in dying illegal, the lawyer has suggested that he will, if Jack Kevorkian comes to trial, use the defense of jury nullification, which means that he will suggest to the jury, yes, this is the law, but do you think it's reasonable that this sweet man here can't help that poor woman over there die? Ah, gee, well, uh, no. He should be allowed to do this, regardless of what the law says. And as a result, he would be found guilty, but regarded as innocent, because the jury did not find that that the law was worth upholding. (coughs) The media seems to suggest in, in its polls, which state that the majority of Americans do not oppose helping others die, that Kevorkian's position is not far off base. That Kevorkian's position is supported by the American people. But even if it is, it's not supported by God. And I think you can see this clearly as you look at God's word. You and I must see the falsehood in the debate. We have no right to determine the value or quality of the life of another person. If it is human life, it is sacred in the eyes of God. And therefore, we must also treat it as sacred in our eyes. If people are bent upon killing themselves... Society should never encourage it, but should instead do everything within its power to discourage it. 
making it easy by getting those in the healthcare profession involved will cause many people who have merely had a bad day to decide that the way out is to kill themselves. And getting the healthcare system or health professionals involved presents other very difficult challenges. But killing people, finally, killing people is anything but compassionate. When you realize that people are considering suicide because they have gone through some sort of crisis or in the midst of some sort of trial, out of which they can find no way, and you realize compassion is not saying, yeah, buddy, oh boy, it's miserable, it's terrible, that's too bad, let's just take care of it once and for all. <laughs> it's, it's laughable. It's not compassionate. <clears throat> we need to return to the basics of this commandment. There's an example concerning this in Scripture. A man who did an honorable thing in a terrible circumstance. And that man was Saul, King Saul's armor bearer. When King Saul was mortally wounded, and he said, run me through. And his armor bearer said, I can't. I can't. Saul killed himself, but the armor bearer was not involved. The outcome is uncertain when assisted suicide or suicide is at issue. Will the person die? Will the person continue to live? Will the person kill themselves? But the sanctity of human life remains absolute. We must not get involved. We must do everything in our power to prevent it happening. Finally, recognize that God is the giver of life, and unless he specifically allows it, we have no business or permission to usurp his authority as the sustainer of human life by taking it. In closing, I want to relay the account of a story that I heard this past Friday. Some of you may have heard it. But on his Breakpoint program at 515 WMIT, Chuck Colson told of a former military surgeon whose name is Kenneth Swan. On military duty, just an excellent account for this. On military duty in the Vietnam War, a young soldier was brought in who had lost both legs and been completely blinded. This surgeon, Dr. Swan, worked for hours with his team sewing the soldier up. The next day he was surprised to find that the other doctors were critical of him. Of course not because he had done a poor job, because he hadn't, but simply because he had done a job at all. They were appalled that he had touched the young man. Instead, they felt he should have let him, left him die. He was too far gone to live. Well, as you can imagine, these sort of questions result in a crisis of conscience. Dr. Swan had doubts about this situation for many years. They went over and over his mind, and finally, within the last several years, he decided to see if he could find the soldier who was sewn up. To settle his doubts one way or the other. Everybody said, I shouldn't have done it. The man's life was worthless, he would have been better off dead. That's, that's the evaluation. He would have been better off dead. He looked, and after two years, he located the man. And this man, whom the other doctors thought should have been left to die, is now in his 40s, married with two daughters. He's graduated from college, taken scuba diving lessons and scuba dives, and he helps train others who, like himself, face life in a wheelchair with various handicaps and disabilities such as his of blindness. And this so former soldier gives credit to God for placing him in the place where he is now. These are the kind of afterward situations 
that cause us to be convicted after the point. We need to take our conviction and allow it through God's grace to give us strength when the decisions are difficult. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would give us grace to see life as having, human life as having the value that you place upon it, that it is sacred, that it is something that we must uphold with all of our strength, physically, morally, and spiritually. Lord, prevent us from ever getting involved in murder, whether in our hearts of others or whether self-murder, because we consider our situations impossible. Help us to submit all of the difficult situations and circumstances of our life to you so that we may be people who live with grace in whatever difficulties we face. In Jesus' name, amen.